Welcome to another Kingdom Community Church podcast. We hope you enjoy the message. The message that I'm going to be sharing tonight is a little bit about faith and a little bit about worship. As Christians, we hear a lot in church, oh, well, you know, worship is a lifestyle. It's a way of life. And we know that to be true. We know that what we see in the Bible and and what we know in our theology we need to put into practice, but we don't always know how to actually carry that out. So that's what I'm going to talk a little bit about tonight. And I do have a fair bit of scripture that I'm going to go through, but we're going to have it up on the screen um, because I read from the message, which is a little bit of a, it's kind of a bit more of a realistic version of the Bible. It's a little easier to follow. It's a little more, for me, it kind of speaks my language. So the first question is, how do we live a life full of faith and worship? Do we leave here on a Sunday and spend the rest of our week dancing up the street, singing praise songs and clapping our hands and hymns? No, because people would think we were nuts. Do I skip down the street yelling, I love my husband, my children are so amazing? No, because people would think I'm a total nutter. It doesn't make it untrue. It's just not how we practically live out what it is that we believe. The Bible defines worship in many ways. In Psalm 34, it says, I'll give you a lesson in God worship. Who out there has a lust for life? can't wait each day to come upon beauty. Guard your tongue from profanity and no more lying through your teeth. Turn your back on sin. Do something good. So do something good. Embrace peace and don't let it get away. Psalm 51.19 speaks of acts of worship, big and small. So that already tells me there's different types of acts of worship. And Numbers 28, 25 says, conclude the seventh day in holy worship. Don't do any regular work on that day. So that also believes me to lead that our acts of worship need to be done on a daily basis. But there's also acts of worship that need to be set aside purely as holy and reverent to God. The words we sing and speak should always be a celebration and a witness and testament to God's goodness. They should bring honour to God, but also bring honour to each other. We don't sing worship songs that honour God, but badmouth each other. We're here to support and encourage and edify one another just as much as we do with God. And it should be a lifestyle. According to John 4, it says the time is coming. In fact, it has come for when what you are called will not matter. So if we actually read that, it says what you are called will not matter. Not what you're called to, what you were called. So what your title is, what your name is, what your role is in life, that stuff doesn't matter. It's what we do with it that matters. Where you go to worship will not matter. It doesn't matter what building it's in. It doesn't matter what congregation you're a part of. It matters that you do worship. It's who you are and the way you live that count before God. Your worship must engage your spirit in the pursuit of truth. That's the kind of people the Father is out looking for. Those who are simply and honestly themselves before him in their worship. Simply and honestly ourselves. How often do we come before God and we just go, 
well, just going to pretend I haven't had a bad week and I'm going to smile and praise God. That's not really honest. We're not being honest to ourselves. We're not being honest to God. God never said to us that we can't have feelings. God never said to us, oh, don't come and worship me until you're all smiley and happy and everything's fine. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, you can't be my servant until your life's all honky-dory. He says, just come to me as you are, honest, reverent, truthful. It says that God is sheer being himself, spirit. Those who worship him must do it out of their very being, their spirits, their true selves in adoration. Do you realise that us being up here, And you guys being down here, at home, in your car, doing your housework, when you're singing praises to God, it's actually not for God's benefit. It's for our benefit. It's for our soul's benefit. It's because there's stuff that goes on in our life that we have to vocally remind that God is bigger than. We have to remind our mind, our will, our emotions, our heartache, our backache, our finances, we have to remind all that stuff that God is so much bigger than it. We need to sing it, we need to say it, we need to pray it, we need to declare it. Philippians 4 says, celebrate God all day, every day. Hold on, but didn't I say to you a minute ago not to go skipping down the street, singing songs, telling everyone how crazy we are about Jesus? So how do we both celebrate God all day, every day without being complete crazies that people can't relate to? It says, revel in him. Make it as clear as you can to all you meet that you are on their side. Working with them and not against them. Help them see that the master is about to arrive because he could show up at any minute. How often in places outside of church environments do people work against each other? Pretty often. I've just come out of two and a half years of working with a company of 10 other people and all 10 of them were against me all the time. They would have birthday lunches in the boardroom of the showroom that I worked in and not tell me. So I would just be sitting at my desk, typing away, minding my own business and then I'd hear, happy birthday to you, blah, 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 you're not invited. People will work against each other unless they're filled with the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit recognises the Holy Spirit in other people and it draws us together. It draws us to work together. It continues to say, don't fret or worry. It's easier said than done. Don't fret or worry. When we fear and we worry, it's because our core belief is not that God can actually accomplish it. Because if we knew that, we wouldn't be afraid. We wouldn't worry. It says, instead of worrying, pray. Let petitions and praises shape your worries into prayers. Letting God know your concerns. But hold on. Doesn't God already know our concerns? Isn't he there when this stuff goes wrong? Isn't he looking when people say horrible things and stuff doesn't go our way and our coffee gets made wrong and car breaks down and we lose our job. Was he not there when that happened? But that then again comes back to the fact that praise and worship isn't just for God's benefit, it's for our benefit. 
before you know it. So this is in the context of speaking out prayers, singing out worship in that environment, continue to do that. And before you know it, a sense of God's wholeness, everything coming together for good will come and settle you down. It's wonderful what happens when Christ displaces the worry at the centre of your life. But how can Christ displace worry at the centre of your life if Christ isn't the centre of your life? If worry is the centre of your life, if fear is the centre of your life, if trying to make enough money to pay the bills is the centre of your life, then Christ isn't the centre of your life. Summing it all up, friends, I'd say you'll do best by filling your minds and meditating on things. Now, we all know this in the standard NIV, NKJV type of versions. But listen to this. You'll do best by filling your minds and meditating on things true, noble, reputable, authentic, compelling, gracious, the best and not the worst, the beautiful and not the ugly, things to praise, not things to curse. How often do we actually meet new people and look for the best in them? How often do we go into a new social environment or a new workplace or a new church and we've already got our guard up? I'll just scope this out before I actually reveal to people who I am or what I'm about. I'll get to know these people before I actually reveal some of my personality. But that's not what God called us to be. A few scriptures ago, he called us to be honest authentic, truly ourselves. Put into practice what you learned from me, what you heard and saw and realised. Do that and God, who makes everything work together for good, will work you into his most excellent harmonies. How many of us struggle with that? Because our physical nature tells us everybody else is out to get me. Nobody has my best interests at heart. I have to fight for myself. I have to put me first and then if other people support that, excellent. But that's not what the Bible tells us to do. The Bible calls us to put other people first because if they put us first, we're each putting each other first. That's how it's supposed to work. The scriptures instruct us to intentionally pray and pray for others. The scriptures tell us to be led by the Spirit of God, to meditate on God's Word, but he doesn't just call us to read it and think about it. He calls us to seek the truth out in those scriptures, to know it in our heart, not just know it in our mind. The scriptures tell us to sing praises, and this includes literal songs, but also of speaking well of one another. We know the phrase, Oh, so-and-so was singing such-and-such's praises. Think about what that actually means. When we think of singing praises, we're talking about this kind of thing. We're up there singing songs or, you know, driving in the car and singing praises. But how often do we actually publicly sing other people's praises? Occasionally, we might go, hey, so-and-so, you did a good job at that. But is it a habit? Is it something we do often? Is it something other people often do for us? It affects our value, not just to hear that stuff, but to be giving that stuff out as well. The Bible also makes it really clear that in speaking well of one another, 
we should refuse cursing and refuse to participate in gossip. It's so easy when someone comes to have a big whinge and unload or vent to join in. Again, God never told us not to have feelings. He didn't tell us that we were just going to become Christians and skip through life and never have a bad day again. We're going to, but it's what we do with that that matters. We can go to our spouse or our friend and have a big whinge and a cry, but God doesn't tell us to all join in on that. God tells us to encourage one another, to pray for one another, to speak well of one another. When we commune with God and fellowship with Christians, it creates an environment for the Holy Spirit to dwell in. It says in the Bible, where two or more are gathered in my name, he's not just talking about us getting together and going, Jesus, where are you now? He's talking about when we are gathered for his purpose, he is called down to dwell in the midst of that. But how do we do that? How do we get him to come and do that? James 2, um, I'm going to be reading from around about 14 to about 30, and I'm going to pop in and out of it. So in this passage, James is talking to the 12 tribes of Judah. Now, initially what he's saying is that we need to be doers of the word and not hearers only. Who in church has heard that before? We all know that scripture. But how do we do? Once we've heard it, how do we then go out and do it? This version of this scripture... I love. It says, dear friends, dear friends. Do you think you'll get anywhere in this if you learn all the right words but never do anything? Does merely talking about faith indicate that a person really has it? What he's asking is, okay, you can talk the talk, You believe the talk, but you're also going out and walking it. The next passage says, if you came upon an old friend dressed in rags, so I want you to imagine just for a minute, someone that you know, you're walking down the street, you see them on a bus stop bench, they're clearly homeless, they're not looking so well for wear, they're half-dressed, obviously hungry, got their sack next to them and their pillow, would you walk up and go, oh, g'day, mate, how have you been? I see you're homeless. I'm going to pray for you. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. See ya. Would that be enough? Would we walk away without so much as, can I give you the jacket out of my boot? Have you had lunch today? Can I give you the five bucks that's in my pocket? What if it was a complete stranger in that situation? Do you still feel the same way? Isn't it obvious that God talk without God acts is outrageous nonsense? This is the Bible saying this. Isn't it obvious that God talk without God acts is outrageous nonsense? Oh, what's that? You feed the hungry and you clothe the naked. Okay. Did you pray about it first? Did God give you instruction to take what you have and put it in that place? Because that's just as important. And this is where faith and works have to come together. Because if you haven't, this is what the Bible says in Luke 8. 
This is a story about the farmer who goes out to sow his seed. Now, we know that the farmer sowed some of it on the road and it was tramped down and the birds ate it. Other seed fell into the gravel where it sprouted but then it died because it didn't have good roots. Other seed fell amongst the weeds. The weeds grew with it and strangled it. And other seed fell in rich earth and produced a bumper crop. So if we look at that, what he's saying here is that when God gives us a seed, we actually need an instruction on where to sow it. Because we could chuck it anywhere and then we could walk away and go, oh, but I fed that person or I clothed that person or I gave that person $500. But if God didn't instruct us to, that seed isn't blessed. That seed is not going into fertile ground. So he goes on to say, are you listening to this? Really listening. You've been given insight into God's kingdom and you know how it works. There are others who need to hear stories to understand, but even with stories, some of them aren't going to get it. Their eyes are open, but don't see a thing. Their ears are open, but they don't hear a thing. Now, this is Jesus speaking. So here Jesus is saying that seed needs to be sown into fertile ground. But he's also saying, so if we go back slightly and he says, even with stories, some aren't going to get it. So what he's saying here is some can hear the word and it just falls on deaf ears. Some can be given food and they aren't grateful for it. This is why the prayer and the Holy Spirit's guidance has to be attached to the seed that we sow, the actions that we give, the time that we commit. We can spend seven days a week serving in church and ministry, but if God hasn't instructed us to, then our kids are getting neglected while we're taking care of somebody else. Our jobs are being neglected while we're spending time doing something else. Am I saying don't serve in church? Absolutely not. What I'm saying is seek the Holy Spirit's direction because where he puts you, whether it's for five minutes a week, five hours a week, five days a week, that's a valuable time. I work in sales and one of my favourite sayings to clients so that they know that whilst I'm helpful and knowledgeable and pushy, I actually really don't care how much they spend. If you spend $100 on something or $1,000 on something, if it's $100 on something you didn't want, it's $100 wasted. Wasted. I don't care if it's 50 cents. If it's not what you wanted, you may as well go over here and spend $1,000 on what you want and that is far more valuable than the $100 that you spent on something you didn't want. So if we look at it from God's perspective, we're taking what he's given us, that hundred, and we're just wasting it. If he can trust us with that little bit, that's when he takes us on to more. So back to James, James 2, 18 to 20. James says, I can already hear one of you agreeing, saying, well, that sounds good. You take care of the faith department and I'll take care of the works department. Not so fast. You can no more show me your works apart from your faith than I can show you my faith apart from my works. Faith and works, works and faith fit together hand in glove. Do I hear you professing to believe in one and only God, but then I observe you complacently sitting back? Sitting back 
as if you'd just done something wonderful. Well, I'm sitting over here and I love God and God's awesome. God's so awesome and amazing while I sit over here and do nothing. Read what that scripture says next. It says, that's just great. Demons do that, but what good does it do them? Use your heads. Do you suppose for a minute that you can cut faith and works in two and not end up with a corpse in your hands? God's trying to give us life. He's trying to give us prosperity. He's trying to give it to us communally as a family. We can't separate it. We can't pick and choose which bits we want to do and which bits we don't. We can't pick and choose what gifts of God's we want to accept. I know a dude who did that. His name's Jonah. We think that we have a choice, but as soon as we surrender our will to God, we're giving up our choice and we're giving him permission to instruct us. James is saying here that words without actions to back them up is actually a sin that brings death. Making promises with no intention of fulfilling them is a sin. We all know someone who offers to do stuff. Oh, come around and do that for you. Oh, watch the kids for you. Oh, yeah, I'll come and help you move. And then they never show up. They're like ghosts in the night. We all know people who do that. The Bible says that doing that is a sin because we're giving our word with absolutely no intention of keeping it. And this is why James is saying faith and works have to go together. We can pray for people and we can believe the Bible and we can speak it out. But unless we're going to actually act it out, we're actually sinning. Proverbs 26, 18 to 19 says, People who shrug off deliberate deceptions, saying, I was only joking, are worse than careless campers who walk away from smouldering campfires. And that might come across a bit harsh, but it's the truth. Saying one thing even in faith but not following through with godly action just leads to chaos and death. And now if we go back to James's story, so what James is basically saying to the 12 tribes is you understand the law, you're now beginning to understand grace, but you need to actually put it into action. Sitting back and being wise scholars isn't enough. He said, wasn't our ancestors Abraham made right with God by works when he placed his son Isaac on the sacrificial altar? Isn't it obvious that faith and works are yoked partners, that faith expresses itself through works, that the works are works of faith? The full meaning of believe in that scripture sentence, Abraham believed God and was set right with God, included his action. It's that mesh of believing and acting that God got Abraham named as God's friend. Is it not evident that a person is made right with God, not by a barren faith, but by faith fruitful in works? Now, I don't know about you guys, but when I think of the story of Abraham and I think of God saying to him, if you love me as much as you say you do, If your faith is legitimate, I want you to take your one and only child that you've waited all this time for, that holds the key to all of the promises that I've given you, this one thing that you have pined for, longed for, prayed for, fasted for, believed for, now that you have it, I'd like you to destroy it, please. Do you know what my reaction would be? 
I'll tell you what it wouldn't be. It wouldn't be, okay, God, I wouldn't be skipping up a mountain with a knife. So I can't imagine that that's what Abraham did either. Um, I would imagine that Abraham, like he had a hundred times before, got on his face and said, God, make another way. There's got to be another way. There had to be some conversation between Abraham and God where God made it real clear that he was not changing his mind. This is what he was asking Abraham to do. And Abraham made a conscious decision to act on his faith. His faith was that God knew better. His faith was that God was bigger, that God was a provider, that God was an overcomer. That was his faith. But then he had to put that into action. And we know how that ends because he goes up the mountain, a ram is supplied and he doesn't have to do what God told him to do. So it wasn't actually his action, it was his obedience. It was his willingness to do what God had instructed him to do. It's how we act on our feelings that matters. So moving on in James 2, it says the same with Rahab the Jericho harlot. Wasn't her action in hiding God's spies and helping them escape that seamless unity of both believing and doing? Isn't that what counted to God? So it wasn't just the action of hiding the spies. It wasn't just the action of doing what she believed. It was both her belief and her action. The very moment you separate body and spirit, you end up with a corpse. So if you separate faith and works, you end up with the same thing, a corpse. So just as a body without a spirit is dead, faith without action is dead. Faith requires action in order to be fruitful. What would happen if we only ever acted based on how we felt? based on what we wanted to do. We're already seeing it really boldly in the world. But this is how I feel. But this is what I feel like today. I don't feel like going to work. I don't feel like being a woman. I don't feel like being a grown-up, so I'm not going to. How's that working out for everyone? Again, God didn't tell us not to have feelings. He's given us really, really good instructions on what to do with those feelings. When we act out on our feelings, what we're actually doing is we are telling the rest of the world what it is that we believe about ourselves. We're telling the rest of the world what it is that we believe that God is saying about us. When we seek man's approval or confirmation over God's, we can't actually then go and blame other people for whatever's going wrong in our life because we're actually allowing it. In John 12, John 12, 42 to 50, says, On the other hand, a considerable number from the ranks of the leaders did believe, but because of the Pharisees, they didn't come out in the open with it. They were afraid of getting kicked out of the meeting place. When push came to shove, they cared more for human approval than for God's glory. But Jesus then summed it all up when he cried out, whoever believes in me, believes not just in me, but the one who sent me. Whoever looks at me is looking in fact at the one who sent me. I am light that has come into the world so that all who believe in me won't have to stay in the dark any longer. That's our, that's our understanding of salvation, that through Jesus, 
we don't have to be a slave to our sin, that through Jesus, we're redeemed from the wages of that sin. But the scripture before that said, that's what the leaders believed. So what is it they're doing wrong here? Here's what Jesus says. If anyone hears what I am saying and doesn't take it seriously, I don't reject him. I didn't come to reject the world. I came to save the world. But you need to know, whomever puts me off, refusing to take on what I'm saying, is willfully choosing rejection. Willfully choosing it. We all know the scripture that says, choose this day whom you will serve. This is what Jesus is talking about. He's saying, pick a side. Because if you're not choosing me, you're automatically choosing the other side. We need to do what's right in God's eyes and not in man's eyes. Something that Pastor Tim um, shared this morning that I've actually added in for tonight is he, he spoke about if you are hurt or angered or discouraged by what other people say, whether it's people close to you or, you know, just people that you don't know very well, if that stuff is affecting your walk and affecting your confidence, it's because what they have spoken somewhere within you aligns with what you believe about yourself. But when you know the truth about who you are, then what, what the world says, what that feedback is, then has to go through a Holy Spirit filter. How can you feel affirmed by truth if you don't believe it when you hear it? So if we don't believe what God says about us, if we don't actually take that in and believe it, then we'll believe what other people say because we don't have that core value of what God has called us to be. And the only way that we can change that core belief is through a divine revelation from the Holy Spirit. Then we will know that we are fulfilling God's purpose and plan in our lives. Well, I tried that. I prayed, read me Bible, fed the hungry, fasted till I keeled over. (laughs) Nothing happened. Poor me. I'll never see the fruits of my labor. I'm working so hard. I'm doing everything God told me to do. Do you know that in the Bible, Jesus actually said that we can't expect to see an instantaneous reward for our labor? He actually has said that we will reap the harvest of other people's sown seed. So on the flip side, does that not also mean that other people are going to reap the harvest of our sown seed? So Jesus is actually telling us, you know what, there's going to come a point where you look at your life and you're going to go, well, I've worked my butt off and actually not received the reward from this because we forget in our spiritual state is where we're actually going to receive our reward. The rest of the world values us based on how used we are. If you think about the CEO of a big company, probably works seven days a week, never sees his wife, has a massive pay packet. His rate of success is based on how used he is and what countable reward he receives for being used. But then when we look at the way that Jesus values us, he values us in a completely different way. God's value system is based on how we submit ourselves and surrender ourselves even if we never receive the reward. We don't know what reward we're going to get in heaven. 
We don't know what God's doing behind the scenes. If God says to me, take that last $10 that you've got and give it to that person, I don't know what that means to them. For all I know, the night before they said, God, you know what? Tomorrow's my last day on earth. If someone doesn't give me $10 to so much as buy a coffee, I'm out of here. We don't know. We only know what the Holy Spirit's prompting us to do. We may never see the outcome of our obedience, but we still need to obey. It's like, in a human sense, it's like we stand there and we go, I'm only willing to give 100% if I know for a fact I'm going to get 110% return. But that's not what God calls us to do. In Matthew 22, he says, Love the Lord your God with all your passion and prayer and intelligence. This is the most important. This is his number one commissioning rule. Love the Lord your God with all your mind, all your heart, all your strength. But there's a second. There's a second instruction on that list. Love others as well as you love yourself. These two commands are pegs. Everything in God's law and the prophets hang on them. So he calls us to love one another. He never told us what we would reap in the immediate for doing that. He tells us what we'll reap in heaven. He tells us what our long-term rewards are going to be. But in the here and now, we just go, well, I gave that homeless person some soup and what did I get for it? Less soup. We don't know what God's doing in other people's lives unless he actually tells us. God didn't mess around when he gave us his best gift. When he gave us Jesus, he gave us the most precious, powerful groundbreaking, earth-shattering thing that he had. When Satan tried to come for us, God went, enough's enough. I've made the rules, I've made the laws, they've done the sacrifices. I need to go bigger, I need to go better. He gave it everything he had and that's what he asked from us in return. Jesus already did everything that was needed on the cross for us to do everything that we need to do. We just don't know it. We forget it because we're human beings. We get hungry. We get tired. We get grumpy. Can I get an amen? Because, you know, I'm like that. My husband will gladly tell you. If I'm in a bad mood, the first thing he'll say to me is, have you eaten? Because we're human beings. We're in a physical body. It gets tired. It gets aches. It gets hungry. We have to wash it. We have to clothe it. We have to put it to bed. We have to feed it. And that's before we've even left the house. And then when we leave the house, we judge other people by their actions, but then we expect everybody else to judge us by our intentions. But other people can't see our intentions and we can't see theirs. The same way that we can only see God's intentions if he reveals them to us. And the only way that they can be revealed to us is through Holy Spirit revelation. And we can't get Holy Spirit revelation if we don't flip these actions back to our faith. If we're not reading the Bible, if we're not praying, if we're not seeking the Holy Spirit, we're not going to get that revelation. So then when we go out there, we're going to hear how useless we are, how shortfalled we are, and we're going to believe it. But we can't believe it. Faith and action do not require foreknowledge of the outcome. 
Nowhere in the Bible does Jesus say, if you do this, I'll do this. If you do this, I'll do that. Sometimes he does, but a majority of the time he gives an instruction and asks for our obedience. Ruth had faith based on Naomi's faith. She had no idea where that faith was going to take her. If you ask Ruth, walking along the dirt track where Orpah racks off and she's following Naomi, if you just sat that woman down and said, do you know where this faith's going to lead you? She would have had no idea. But she was thankful and she was faithful. She did everything that God told her to do, everything that God told Naomi to do, and it worked out pretty well for her in the end. Obedient action based on faith alone is what freed her. She only had faith to ride on. She didn't have so much as a stick to scratch on the ground when she was walking. Everything she had after that came from her obedience. God loves us based on his capacity to love us, not based on our capacity to earn it. So we need to love others the same way. We need to love others based on God's capacity to love us, not our capacity to love them. Because if we, the same way that I said earlier, that if we wait until we're perfect and amazing and wonderful and great before we come and worship God, if we wait for other people to be wonderful and amazing and great before we love them, it's never going to happen. Never going to happen. So if God doesn't wait for us to be perfect, why are we waiting for other people to be perfect? When you do the right thing to me, then I'll help you. It's not how it works. Because if that is how it works, who are we actually looking to receive love from? Because if we're looking to God for it and we're giving it out, then we shouldn't actually be looking for any back from people. God's love should overflow us so that it pours into the lives of others. It has nothing to do with our ability to love people. Everything to do with God's ability to love people. Jesus doesn't actually need us to accept his sacrifice. He sacrificed himself because he wanted to. He wasn't waiting for a response from us. Yet when we do things for other people, we wait for some kind of positive feedback from them that may never come. We're afraid of what other people will judge us on, the feedback they'll give us, the rejection. Religion is what's afraid of condemnation. What does the Bible say? The Bible says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So if you're afraid of condemnation, where are you? Is Christ what's working through you if you're afraid of what other people are going to say and do and the feedback you're going to get? Now, I'm going to wrap it up, but I'm just going to run through a few objections that I have encountered both in myself and in other people over the years. An objection is a perceived hindrance. So going back to sales, we get trained to deal with people's objections. So basically, it's the reason they have in their head why they can't go through with whatever we want them to go through with. So we have objections as human beings to doing what God's called us to do. And I've written a few down that are in relation to action and a few that are in relation to faith. So some objections for action. I'm waiting for the green light from God. I've been praying about it. I know that God's called me to do it. I'm just waiting for the green light. 
let me tell you today, there's no magic green light. If God's told you to do it, off your trot. There's, there's no waiting on it unless God has told you to wait for a specific time or a specific event. God's told you to do it, get started. If you can't figure out how to make it happen, get started anyway, because he wouldn't have told you if he wasn't going to provide the means. Oh, but I have work and family and church and social commitments and sports and all this other stuff. Who doesn't? If you wait until you have free time to do what God's called you to do, it's like waiting until you're perfect to worship. It's never going to happen. You have to prioritise what God has called you to do. We need to live out God's instructions first and without hesitation and then the rest of our lives will fall into place. But by the same token, we can't leap off a cliff and then say, but God will save me. If he didn't tell you to jump off, guess what? You're done. Do your best and let God do the rest. Who's heard that saying before? Anyone who's been around church for a while would have heard that. Do your best and let God do the rest. No, no. Let God do his best and let him tell you what you need to do after that. I have kids with special needs. I have a baby. I'm a single parent. I'm too young. I'm too old. I have all these physical requirements. Okay, yes. This means you need to plan ahead. I have kids. One of them has special needs. I'm not yet too old to do things, but there's some things that I'm not young enough to do. But if God tells you to do something, there's a reason. And there is a way to overcome anything that's standing in your way. God would not call you to do something that was impossible for him. Might be impossible for you, it was not impossible for him. He wouldn't call you to do it if he wasn't going to back you 100% of the way. I can't act on that instruction from God because I can't spare the time, the money, the food, the clothing, whatever. We need to trust in God's heavenly economy. I've had times in my life where God, God has said, I know you've only got $20 for the next like eight weeks, but I need you to do this with it. God will always bless you when you're obedient to what he has instructed you to do. I have a friend who is a uh, little known preacher and he went to a conference that was being hosted by a church and the pastor of that particular church was his net worth was about 12 million dollars and when he was on his way to the service God said to him I want you to take a thousand dollars out of your bank and give it to that pastor put it in an envelope give it to him so this guy went God a thousand dollars is like a drop in the ocean to this dude he's worth 12 million dollars what's a thousand dollars going to do now, $1,000 to you or me might be a lot, but what if God said $5? How often do we take what God's told us to give and just go, well, how's that going to make a difference? So that was this guy's attitude. How's that going to make a difference? But he did it. He said, okay, you're telling me to do it. Go to the bank. I've only got $1,000. Put it in an envelope. So he goes to the meeting and he's sitting at the meeting, the whole, whole conference. God sure about this it seems like the most ridiculous thing to do ever I feel like such an idiot but he obeyed right at the end of the conference he went up to the to the pastor and he said look I know you probably don't need this and I know you don't know me but God's told me to give this to you and he gave him the envelope and the pastor opened it and he he looked at what was in there 
And then he counted it out and he just broke down. And my friend was just taken aback. What's going on here? Why is he breaking down? He's like, and the pastor explained to him that whilst his net worth was $12 million, it was the church's money. It was the church's assets. He was actually broke, completely broke. And he was burnt out and he was broken, heartbroken. He couldn't afford to take care of his family. His wife had threatened to leave him. And the night before the conference started, he said, God, unless you want me to walk away from my ministry, sometime during this conference, someone's going to hand me exactly $1,000. And if they don't, I'm out of here. So that one man's obedience, that one little drop in the ocean, what he thought would be a drop in the ocean to this guy, was a life-changing event. We don't know what God's doing behind closed doors. Another objection. Last time I stepped out in faith, it didn't work out. What God promised didn't happen. I failed. It didn't turn out the way I wanted it to. That's going to happen a lot. And it shouldn't stop us from stepping out the way God calls us to. It didn't work out in our eyes because we didn't see the fruit of it. But God has actually said in the Bible that sometimes we won't. I can't participate in that because they're doing it wrong and I'm not willing to be a part of it if they're just going to do it in halves. I'll just pray that God helps them. We've seen that attitude before in churches. We've seen that attitude in workplaces. Well, they're, they're doing half a job. I'm not getting in on that. Again, we don't know what God has instructed the people who were already involved. And we also don't know what those people have cried out for God for. Sure, they might be doing it by half, but you might be exactly what they need. They might be broken and burnt out and run down and crying out to God for just a little help. So sometimes, as difficult as it is, we need to just bite our tongue and roll up our sleeves and get in there and help. My favourite one that I hear a lot, it's not my responsibility, it's not my job, I don't work in that department. Or on the flip side, I'm not helping them, this is my job, not that. We don't need a title to fulfil the duty. I don't need to be in charge of hospitality to go out to the kitchen and see that food's ready to be put out. I don't need to be running the cleaning department of the church to see rubbish and pick it up and throw it away. So if that seems logical, why do we not apply that to every ministry in the church? Oh, but I'm not part of that department. Well, if you're a Christian, you kind of are. You are a part of that department. You're part of God's department. Objections to faith. Why we don't pray, why we don't fast, why we don't read the Bible. Oh, I don't have time for that stuff. Oh, I don't have time to chase the pastor up to get his theory on such and such. We don't have time for all of that talky talk. We just need to roll our sleeves up and get it done. That's partly true. But we need to seek God's wise counsel before we go jumping into stuff. Before when I said... um, You can't jump off a cliff and expect God to save you unless he's actually told you to take a running leap. By the same token, 
We can't sit around waiting for that green light. If God's told you, you get up and go. If God hasn't told you, stay put until he tells you. If you're not seeking God to find out, well, then it's going to end up in trouble any which way. See a need, fill a need. It needed doing and nobody else put their hand up to do it. Okay, yes, that's partly true. But if you rush into doing things without actually seeking God about whether it should be you that's done it, you don't know how many Joes and Johns are sitting back going, God, I have a real passion for that ministry, but they don't need anybody. We could be filling a space just because we can rather than waiting on God to prompt us to the right people, to the right jobs. We don't know who is waiting in the wings to step up to something if we leap in before we even check it out. I jump in and do things straight away because I have to be an example to my kids, family, friends, colleagues. That's true. But what has God given us as his first instruction? To love him above all else. How do we love him above all else if we're not seeking him first? Seek first the kingdom of God. Then all this other stuff comes. I have lots of money, time and abilities, so it would be wrong to keep all this stuff to myself. Again, this comes back to the seed. Being a good steward. Sowing the seed where God has actually called you to place it. If you step into a place where God hasn't prompted you to, you could unknowingly be robbing a person of faith, of their opportunity to act, of their opportunity to be involved. So then, not only does it waste your seed, theirs never gets a chance to get in the ground. If I do what the Bible says, God will bless that. Well, only if God has instructed you to do it now. This is where the Holy Spirit comes in. We got to wait until God tells us and then when he does tell us, don't wait. If it's done according to God's will, I actually uh, got, got an online accord, um, concordance and I looked up the word according and there are hundreds of examples in the Bible where it says according to his word, according to his promises, according to his heart, according to his unfailing love, according to his passion, according to his spirit, according to his eternal purposes, according to his riches. There was one place in the whole Bible where I could find a scripture that was according to our behaviour. And that's in Psalm 103. And it talks about our behaviour on judgment day. That is the one and only day where God's hand is forced by our behaviour. Those who aren't helping can't tell me how to do it right. You don't know what revelation God's given other people. You don't know what experience they've got unless they tell you. So when God tells us to get in and do something, we just need to get alongside whoever's doing it. If someone's in charge of a ministry and we don't like the way they do it, tough. Because unless God has told you to be some prophet to go and speak to them and go and instruct them and direct them, then we need to come back to where we're praising one another and not gossiping about one another. If God tells you to get alongside them and support them, even though you don't like the way they do things, 
too bad. Then what you do is you take a deep breath and you go, you know what, God, I'm going to put my mind, my will and my emotions aside and I'm going to follow your direction because I know all things work together for good for those who love the Lord. So if I'm going to love you instead of my own opinion and get behind these people, it can only work out for good. of objections for seeking and obeying God, so faith in action, are birthed out of our own minds and hearts. It's what we believe. It's what we think of ourselves. It's what we think of other people. It's what we feel. Our own presumptions of what God thinks, what others think, and what the outcome or the impact is going to be is what hinders us more than any other external influence. Starts here. That's why Philippians says, think on things, meditate on things. If this is where it starts, if this is where it starts, in your mind and in your heart, that's what you have to refocus before you get up on your feet and start running. The second biggest hindrance is external influences and circumstances that we allow to hinder us. Jeff was talking before about the lady who... You know, her sandwich was made wrong and this happened wrong and a car broke down. We have a choice as to whether we let that get to us or not. I have days where I get home from work and I say to Greg, I'm going for a shower. Please don't talk to me. I've had a terrible day. This has gone wrong and that's gone wrong. And rather than take it out on you, I'm going to go hide until I'm not mad anymore. And then I get in the shower and I go, God, this happened and that happened. And why did this happen? And that didn't work out the way I wanted it to. God gets to hear it. Sometimes he gets to hear it, but mostly God gets to hear it. God is totally okay with us not being okay with stuff. Why are we not called to be perfect? We're called to rely on him. There have been times in my life where I've chucked my Bible on the ground and literally stood on it and gone, you know what, I'm standing on your word. You promised me this. You told me if I did this, this would happen, and it hasn't. And guess what? Stuff gives God will honour you for honouring him by being honest and truthful. And the last major hurdle that we struggle with is not trusting God. We say we do, but we don't act like we do. We get a case of the what ifs. What if this happens? What if that happens? What if this doesn't happen? What if I do what you said? What if I sow that money and it doesn't come back to me? What if I give my time? We start to think about, and what we're actually doing is we're saying, God, I know you've given me that instruction and I trust you, but what if you're wrong? But God's not wrong. And we need to get out of our own head sometimes and go, you know what, God, when I say I trust you, I mean it. And that's where filling our minds with the word, filling our heart with the Holy Spirit, filling our mouths with praise for one another and praise for God, it grows and strengthens our spirit and it pushes away the flesh man. What would happen if we chose to disregard our own physical filter and only ever pass things through the Holy Spirit filter? Now think about that. I don't mean just sometimes, I mean every single circumstance. For kids who have stutters, a really, really good exercise is for them to count backwards from 10 or 5 because that is something they know really well and it can slow them down so that they can think, 
before they speak. What if we had like a 10 second Holy Ghost filter where we just went, hold on God, Holy Spirit 10, Holy Spirit 9, Holy Spirit, what are you saying, 8? What if we actually did that? Maybe not, you know, out loud. But what if we started doing that every time we came up against anything, positive or negative? Oh, I think God's telling me to go and do this. Hold on, 10 second Holy Ghost filter. What's God actually telling me to do? Then act on it. I'll tell you what would happen because Galatians 5 tells us. Galatians 5, 19 to 22. It is obvious what kind of life develops out of trying to get your own way all the time. So if we live by how we feel, we see it in the world all the time. Here's what the Bible says happens. Repetitive, loveless, cheap sex. A stinking accumulation of mental and emotional garbage. Frenzied and joyless grabs for happiness. Trinket gods. Magic show religions. Paranoid loneliness. Cutthroat competition. All-consuming yet never satisfied wants, a brutal temper, an impotence to be loved or to love, divided homes and divided lives, small-minded and lopsided pursuits, the vicious habit of depersonalizing everyone into a rival. Who knows someone who can make an enemy out of anybody? I know people like that. It's like the second they wake up in the morning, everybody's out to get me, I've got my guard up. I'm going to get you before you get me. Because they're living out of what they feel, they're living out of what they fear. Uncontrolled and uncontrollable addictions, ugly parodies of community. I could go on. This isn't the first time I have warned you, you know. If you use your freedom this way, your, your freedom of choice, your will to choose, if you use it to just do whatever you like, that's what's going to happen and you will not inherit the kingdom of God. But what happens when we live God's way? He brings gifts into our lives much the same way that fruit appears in an orchard. Does anybody know how fruit appears in an orchard? Oh, lots of seed, lots of fertile ground, years of hard work and depending on what you're planting, It can be five or ten years before you actually see any fruit. That stuff doesn't happen by accident. And this is what this scripture is saying. This scripture is saying the Holy Spirit doesn't deposit gifts into you by accident. It comes through seeking him, reading his word, praying, singing songs, speaking to one another. If we do that, here's what the Holy Spirit gives us. Things like affection for others exuberance about life, serenity. We develop a willingness to stick with things, a sense of compassion in the heart and a conviction that a basic holiness permeates all things and all people. We find ourselves involved in loyal commitments, not needing to force our way in life, able to marshal and direct our energies wisely, being guided by the Holy Spirit. Read the last couple of sentences again. Not needing to force our way in life. I know I've like, because I recently lost my job and I'd actually been praying for a really long time. God, I can't do this anymore. Something's got to give. And I can't tell you how many times I cried and begged for something to change and it never did. 
and then just out of the blue, I was made redundant. And I was literally driving home from work going, God, after all this time, why would you now make me redundant? And he said, because their hearts were closed. I gave them, I gave you to them day after day after day after day after day. The Bible says that for unsaved people, God will only knock so many times. For the saved, he will chase us relentlessly. There's only so many opportunities God is going to give us to obey. It says not needing to force our way in life, able to marshal and direct our energies wisely. The Holy Spirit's wise counsel. That's what we need to seek. Whether it's in our prayer life, in our active life, he says to love him first, but he says to love others second. And we can only do that if we truly grasp how much he loves us. So I'm going to pray and I am more than happy to pray for anybody who wants to come and have prayer. I want you guys to go away from this a little bit challenged because although there's a lot of pieces here, God's whole idea is that these pieces come together in one big picture, that our faith and our action come together, that someone who's good at this and someone who's good at that work together. That's what God's asking us to do. How many times do we come to church and we go, oh, hey, how you going? And then we walk off before we hear the answer. So my challenge to you over this next week is when you ask someone how they are, don't ask unless you intend to stand and hear the answer because we don't know what people are crying out for and it could just be us. And if we walk off before we even have heard, we don't even know. So that's my challenge to you this week. Ask someone, how are you? And wait to hear the answer because you just don't know what you can give. Thank you, Lord. I just pray tonight, God, that you put your finger on the part of our heart that needs you most. Each of us tonight is going to have a different area, Lord, but I just ask that you help us to seek your direction first before we start any journey. And Lord, please let every single moment of our day and our week just be permeated and surrounded by your Holy Spirit so that everything that we think and say and feel has to go through that Holy Spirit filter. Holy Spirit, I ask that you impart yourself onto each and every one of us here tonight, that when we go out from this building, that we go through our week, that we just ooze the Holy Spirit, that we just ooze your love, your joy, your peace, your patience, your kindness, your goodness, your gratefulness. Help us, Lord, to be gentle and giving the way that you've called us to be. And Lord, I just ask that for each person that walks out of this building, if they've heard none of my words, that's fine, God. But your words stay in their heart, Lord, that they go through the next week, the next month, the next year, knowing the truth that they are loved by you, that I am loved by you before anybody else, God. Thank you, Jesus.
Thanks for listening. This has been another Kingdom Community Church podcast. If you'd like more information about our church, go to www.kingdomcc.com.au.